I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Rick Kelly. And we love to watch. We love to watch found out that the color out of space is like a purple violet. Mm, I think it's a pink, Peter. <laughs> That's why we'll never know. We can't even agree. <laughs> but I see your true colors shining through. I see your true Hey, Peter. What's up? Thanks for coming on our show, Rick. Again, it's been a while. Mm -hmm. Um, I think last time was Turkey Shoot. And uh, you might not be able to finish recording this because I believe your girlfriend's in labor. labor? Uh, Hopefully not right now, but maybe. It's possible. I'm in the basement, so I I won't know for a second. Do you know how many like foot stomps means I'm having this kid? (laughs) We should have. Yeah, we should have figured that out before we started recording. I don't know. If I'm just gone, if I'm just, if I don't respond, I went to the hospital. Rick, relationships are all about communication, and that's doubly true when there's a when there's a kid. So I, I hope that you guys figure out all of your different knocking and symbol symbols. That's uh, not uh, too likely. More importantly, okay. you have a basement. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched California. Zodiac, I know what that means. Yeah, well, uh, it was going to be, or it's supposed to be my uh, my cinema. I have this vision that it'll be like the movie room, right? But now, currently, there's a crib, a bassinet, a, a little swing, and some other uh, assorted baby gear. So I think already the baby has destroyed my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's just the baby's not going to get much sleep because you're going to be up in the middle of the night watching fucking silent <laughs> horror movies. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. yeah. Actually, yeah, Rick loves that. silent movies. He just has to listen to them without score, and he's perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> You're only watching The Passion of Joan of Arc. <laughs> <laughs> Going forward. But yeah, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It is our third week of our mega super double month uh, on, on the adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft called Summer of Lovecraft. Uh, and this is our first. We kind of been alluding to it that we're trying to cram so much Lovecraft adaptations in, into these next eight weeks that we're actually even doubling doubling up on some movies. So we're doing uh, two movies today for We Love to Watch, a podcast that picks themes. Uh, forgot to say that part, but whatever. Uh, anyways, and those two movies we are doing is 2010's Little Scene, Little Available. Uh, I have no Wikipedia entry and I'm a Scream movie. The Color uh, Out of Space from Germany, which is a little low-budget black-and-white adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's story of the same name. And then we're going to we're, we're going to start there. And then we're going to uh, start talking about another one. 1991's also somewhat hard to see. Uh, Dan O'Bannon movie who directed two movies, this and Return of the Living Dead, and of course have, has scripted most of your favorite sci-fi movies from the uh, late 70s and 80s, like Total Recall and a few others, uh, called The Resurrected, which is an adaptation of uh, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, which is the only official novel that Lovecraft ever wrote. So um, really, really going for two, um, I think, pretty well-regarded stories. Uh, like a lot of Lovecraft adaptations, I think the results are somewhat mixed, although I'm relatively positive on both uh, 
the, especially the resurrected. So I'm very excited to start talking about it. Rick, before we get into it more, uh, why don't you reintroduce yourself to the audience if they don't know who you are? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. And then we have so much movie to cover. We're just going to get into it. Totally. <laughs> well, uh, my name is Rick. I've been on the show a couple. I, I don't even know how many times. Do you know how many times? I think I, I want to say this is your either your fifth or sixth. We love to watch appearance. It sounds right. But then like, but probably like eighth appearance on the network. On the network. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> we also did uh, Pod's Not Dead. Um, a couple episodes yeah. of that, and uh, so forth. I write. Um, I have written at LudditeRobot.com. I'm on a bit of a hiatus right now, um, dealing with life stuff, like having babies, fixing a new house, and all the rest of this things that you do that doesn't involve horror movies and so forth. But uh, there'll probably oh, no. be more. You're going you're gonna to pivot uh, Luddite Robot into one of those like uh, recipe <laughs> websites where it's like, it's like three pages of how you replaced your floorboards, and then finally you'll give them like, a vegan mushroom <clears throat> soup recipe. I wasn't, but that sounds like a really great idea. <laughs> I think I might. I think I might do that now. Um, but yeah, uh, Luddy Robot has a long back catalog, and I hope a future catalog. Once you yeah. uh, you you get some some major life milestones out of the way, um, <laughs> once you get that once you get that stuff done, uh, I, I would love to see what you write in the future. And because the, the back catalog on Luddy Robot is is literally some of my favorite writing on the web about movies. Oh, thanks, man. It, it's so it's so smart. It's so taut. It doesn't waste your fucking time. It's thought provoking without being pretentious. Like I, I just I just love your site, man. No, so yeah, I, I, I like coming on this show. It was great. Yeah, I, I really I really like your back catalog. I'm less interested in your future writing, <laughs> uh, mainly because uh, having kids really takes the the edge out of people in general. And that's why this podcast has never been good because I've always had kids. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for your brutal honesty that's appreciated yeah, yeah but good great back catalog just yeah. keep going back read them over and over this is gonna inspire rick to write like 900 pieces before the booth the due date <laughs> gotta crank them out running out of time uh, anyway uh without further ado are you guys ready to discuss uh the color from out of space it's color it. out of space the color, that's why I had so much trouble logging in on Letterboxd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the color, space. out from space. Yeah, it, uh, rhymes with, it rhymes with eyes without a face. Yeah. Color <laughs> out of space. Color out of space. Uh, I'll do the recap on this one. Peter, do you have any alternate taglines? Uh, <laughs> family matters. <laughs> Did I do that? <laughs> Did I do that? Said the meteor. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, let me do a quick recap. The color is pink. Uh, it's not purple, like Peter said, or lavender, or other colors that he said that was wrong. It's just pink. We all see color the same. I guess they actually did pick a good color. I was making they fun did. of I was making fun of that, or I guess lightly teasing that, but I think they actually did pick a good color because now we're arguing about purple versus pink versus fuchsia and lavender. And it's got that Lovecraftian indescribability going for it, apparently. Yeah. It, apparently. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were smarter than we thought. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's it's actually somewhat a faithful adaptation of the of the story, which I have said on a previous uh, podcast that that is my favorite um my favorite Lovecraft story. Can we pause real quick there? It's the only one of his stories that he talks up. 
Yeah, um, he loved that one. It's the only one of his, like, he, he talks down, like, pretty much all of them, uh, except for this is the one that in a few different letters he said, like, this one rules, and it is probably my <laughs> <laughs> Quote, unquote. Um, it is one where I feel like his uh, pink or fuchsia prose is somehow, like, works with the kind of obsessive panic of the material almost perfectly and that doesn't mean that i don't like it in other places we kind of already had a long discussion about this but i feel like there's not a point where i go oh okay just get to whatever's gonna come next here lovecraft like it is it is kind of a perfect story uh i think it's like 30 or 40 pages long it's really good so i'll, I'll talk about my thoughts on the adaptation but really quickly if you don't know the story it's essentially about this uh thing from space that uh, well, I'll talk about the I guess the movie's incarnation of it, but it's a, 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 a person is kind of going back and traveling to uh, this town in Germany where he's heard these stories and he meets this uh, guy at who starts who was <laughs> there's a lot of flashbacks within flashbacks, but then this older guy starts retelling the story of when he was young and this family who lived in the area where a meteor crashed uh, near their farm and a lot of bad stuff started happening. So stuff like the pl- uh, the plants getting bigger, things turning odd colors, things turning dusty, eventually stuff like people starting to act weird or big fucking bugs. And uh, the, no- the novel itself talks a lot about how everything turns gray. Well, this movie is shot in black and white on kind of like a digital black and white. We can talk about how we how well we think that works in a little bit. But it's essentially kind of this story where a person in the present day is investigating and finding out what's going on while a, a another person in the 1975 when it was occurring was also sort of investigating what, but was part of the neighborhood. I, I kind of feel it's a little convoluted with the way they did that. But anyway, so uh, things keep getting worse and worse. Uh, crops start dying. Stuff turns to dust. Uh, things become much more creepy and sp- spooky. The family themselves start showing up places. People in the town just start leaving them alone until all of a sudden um, the, it really kind of in the last 20 minutes really turns into this kind of creepy horror movie where like bodies start decaying. The mom of the family is like lost her mind in the attic and eventually people are kind of driven mad or disappear. Uh, the army shows up. Uh, goes into this well area where that is kind of everything around it is dead uh, and the color kind of shoots back up into outer space uh, never to be seen again question mark uh, so that's like kind of the 45 second version there's a lot of stuff again the, the the most interesting choice and one I really like that this movie does is that in the novel or the story Lovecraft talks about how it's like a, that the scientists and the people that are studying it it's a color in name only but it's not like a color anyone could describe or a scene before that exists on Earth. And it's kind of like the name they're giving it. So that understandably is very – and that color starts to show up in all the plants and animals and uh, and eventually kind of becomes this thing that drives people mad like Lovecraft stories do. And I get why that would be very hard to depict in a film. How do you depict a color that doesn't exist? So this movie has done – I think it's kind of best idea is to shoot the movie in black and white. Mm-hmm. And have the like, uh, like the little girl's jacket and Schindler's List. The color be the only thing that has a color on screen, and it being kind of still a weird, unnatural 
color. My biggest problem with that as a movie is that I really like the uh, the story's depiction of how everything starts out like fruits getting big and everyone's excited, and then like it starts turning this in inhuman gray Sorry, color. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I read that in like the BuzzFeed article uh, headline voice. <laughs> fruits getting big, everyone's excited. Don't ask questions. Um, but. Uh, but, you know, I, I like the way the story takes a lot of time to kind of describe how things start becoming gray and dead and decaying and colorless. And uh, that's that part and that feeling that is so well uh, – that's so evocative in the story is, is you know, they, they, do, they make things become dusty or just kind of look grosser. But it really doesn't have that idea of, like, the color itself fading from life that this – that the story gives off in that the whole thing is shot in black and white. And the last thing I'll say is uh, like the black and white cinematography is it, it, it. This feels like a student film. I know it wasn't a student film, but it it feels like a student film shot uh, on digital, which it was in black and white with like not people who understood lighting or cinematography. So while there there is some really cool shots and well done shots, the whole movie kind of looks really washed out too, which uh, which kind of detracts a little bit from everything else. So I'm a little mixed on this movie. I, I get why there's people that have said like, this is the best adaptation of Lovecraft because it's relatively faithful to the story. But at the end of the day, I feel like, uh, people behind the camera with a little more competence could have made this maybe not the best movie of all time, but something that's a little more enjoyable to watch. Yeah, the I have a hard time shitting on these no budget movies that were clearly made from the purposes of uh, oh yeah a group of fans. But yeah, I completely I completely agree. Uh, it, it does sort of falter in the the inspiration department for me that makes it feel like a student film. It doesn't feel like they really grasped the material and found a way to talk around the changes to film. It feels like they literally just talk around the changes to film by shoving descriptions almost verbatim from the text into the mouths of the locals. Yeah, like, that's one like, of my oh, yeah. that's one of my note too, where they literally take descriptive dialogue and or descriptive like just sentences and turn it into dialogue that is so awkward and weird so the reason and the reason basically i don't fault the movie for not having a budget i i don't yeah. be, i but i think a lot of this movie could have been told from off screen and with with uh clever editing and with people coming back from the farm after trying to check in on their friend or you know you have a character popping in and out of the farm and reporting back to people and like some great performances which cost nothing right yeah Just, <laughs> some great performances, I think, could have – and some good scripting, which also theoretically costs nothing, could have really sold us on the horror um, and let it exist in our head with a few bare flashes of images. Whereas with this, they're just like, huh, this is uh, us reading the story. You want us to read the story to you? Yeah, and I, I and I also think like the framing device is subtractive and actually takes oh, away sure. what – what I think is actually one of the eeriest parts of the story. So the story itself starts with kind of the scientists finding it, right? And they're taking it back to the lab and doing experiments because these like these pustules or crystals pulse out this color and then things happen. And eventually the scientists aren't able to get samples anymore and they kind of abandon the farm. And then like the peop these these villagers and the family in this farm 
or then are like, okay, I guess the, you know, the people who know what they're doing have left the room and now they're dealing with this like slow, like, uh, why doesn't it snow as much and it's not windy and like, oh, but there's some good things happening and then things get worse and worse and they're just kind of abandoned by the scientists and the experts that were initially there to seemingly help or resolve or figure out the mystery of the situation. And like they take all of that scientist stuff out. And instead replace it with a weird, like, I'm going back to my hometown to find the mystery of the comet. Yeah, the scientists are just like, uh, back to working on V2 rockets. Well, that's actually a really interesting thing that I was going to point out was the, it, it, it's, it has this, like, um, serious faithfulness. Like, it wants to be really faithful to uh, the text, which is what <clears throat> people seem to give it a lot of credit for. But then the thing that it does introduce, the major change that it makes is changing the setting to Germany. And having this sort of post-war backstory. And then they don't actually really explore the ramifications or like how that relates, which would be interesting. I was like, okay, so this is going to be the twist. This is how they are playing with it. But they kind of don't. They're caught between just sort of pantomiming the story. And then there's like, and we'll put it in Germany, I guess. But it's like when you have a writer, for instance, like Lovecraft, the notion of post-war Germany and the fallout of the Holocaust might be really interesting in various ways, but they yeah. don't um, they don't talk about that. And even if and even if it wasn't the movie somehow contending with the Holocaust or the ravages of fascism or whatever, let's like just the economic angle that that the economy was ravaged and essentially without American and, and you know European intervention, like people would have been starving just the same way they were after World War One. And like even if you just took that angle and just like placed us in a time and place, like the war is over, farmers are destitute. They had they had a thriving reason to continue on, and then the war ended, and now the economy has collapsed, and they can't get you know the right price for what their produce is, or whatever. Um, that would be really interesting because like this is a story about sustenance farmers who all of a sudden their crops end up becoming massive but inedible. Yeah, <laughs> like that's so that's such a fascinating depression or recession story, right? Yep. Um, you're, you're super, you're super right, Rick. There's so much to dive into there, but even just like a base level of historical context could have added a lot of power to this. But instead it just feels like they were like, well, we're going to have like a bunch of German actors. How do we make this take place in Germany? All right, we need to add a framing device. And I was like, no, no, you don't need to do that. Most people have not read the story. It's like a 30 page story from 1920. Like, you know, well, and not to harp, I do feel like one of the most interesting parts is which could have been done very well in like a post-war Germany is this idea of like these like scientists and authority figures like abandoning people after like it's not like the scientists cause destruction necessarily in the in the story but they are seen as like okay there's things going on these are the people that understand it that's why we have scientists and they go do their experiments and are just like yeah beats me well, good luck on the farm with the with all the weird stuff going on. And I like right. that I think that's very like evocative of like this I you could have t- turned it into somewhat of a parable of like whether it's like the authority figures in like Nazi Germany or post-war kind of like making these decisions without, you know, um the the people that lived in the towns and the villages in mind and and kind of leaving them to rot once it was 
uh, either not advantageous for them or just just they just decide they didn't care anymore enough to 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 help. And that's like that's a good allegory for a million different things. And that's sure. like and that's such a non Lovecraft story, too. Right. Like because Lovecraft, uh, even if I don't know whose side he was on in the story. Uh, he's not always the most easy to read into. Knowing Lovecraft, he probably was on the scientist side and was like, leave these poor people to rot in their dumb farm. But like me reading it now, I like it is such a different story than what Lovecraft usually tells, which is who are his like protagonists? They're almost always like investigators or journalists or scientists. And this is like the researchers like, in general. Yeah, yeah. The researchers give up. And decide they're not interested anymore, which is so unlovecraftian. And like, there's a lot of interesting ways they could take this story. And in this one, they just are like, "Yeah, let's just throw that part out and get right to investigating the family." I, I will right. say by, by Liam Gallagher slash Dimitri Martin. <laughs> I will say the framing <laughs> device, the framing, the outer framing device is nonsense to me. I think we're we're kind of talking about that, but the um. I think that the idea of somebody coming in and interviewing survivors of the incident and interviewing like old townsfolk who are maybe a little apprehensive to talk, but maybe if you get them drunk or maybe if you like you pry them, they'll talk. Um, I think that's very interesting. Um, And it's a way and I think it's a great way to frame this story because the story takes place over uh, weeks, months, years. And I think it helps pass the time. And I don't think this story would work if it was just following the family directly in a sort of conjuring esque manner. Yeah. Um, so, so it has like it has like it has like a frame within a frame. There's like a frame, and then there's like bunting, and then there's another wooden frame inside that. And I feel like you should just just stick with the one framing device, which is uh, man a man uh, arrives at a small town to figure out like what happened, try and get some backstory. He talks to the survivors. And then we get pictures of of a strange happening that we will never know an objective truth about. And even the and even the people that were there and saw with their own eyes and don't doubt their own, you know, their own veracity, they don't know an objective truth about it. Like that's 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 a that's yeah. a traditional good movie storytelling setting. I throw in there, I mean, we'll get to it more um, when we talk about the resurrected, but these are both in some ways um they have kind of noirish aspects of, yeah. um, you know, investigators. Um, the framing device thing is very typical of a lot of noirs, right? Like you think of, um, I don't know, Sunset Boulevard with the, uh, you know, the dead Joe Gillis recounting his own murder or whatever. Yeah, or the resurrected, um, which we're going to talk about. Yeah, so these things are are pretty common, and I kind of feel like with Lovecraft too, um, or at least my understanding of Lovecraft, there is this notion of these foundational mysteries of stories within stories dating back to whenever, you know what I mean? Everyone's yeah. always uncovering the hidden story from the elders or whatever. Um, yeah. Well, and also he does start out a lot of his stories with like, let me tell you the tale of the day I saw yeah. the horror that I can't describe to you even to this day. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, so in, in somewhat offense of the movie, I, I can see the framing device, but it doesn't, it's, it doesn't pull together or cohere in any way within the movie that that's satisfying, that's for sure. But then also in the story, he keeps using the phrase in the actual printed story. He keeps using the phrase um, the the mysteries of the primal earth, right? So yeah. in some ways, like that's there's also a tension there between the unveiling the mystery that the researchers are discovering, or the detectives, or whatever you want to call them, the person who's trying to uncover 
some sort of truth coming up face to face with the inexplicable, which is the, you know, the sort of motif of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point. But it, it is one of those ones that even the stuff it does well, you you when you see a movie that's done again, it's low budget. It's with love. It's yeah. not like it's not something that I watch and go, this is stupid or bad. And like instead, the moments that do impress me that we will get to, I think, are that much more like, hey, you know. That's pretty good for this group of filmmakers. And I don't mean that insultingly, even though I know I laughed as I said it. But it's true. Like, it still was able to surprise me. There are moments that are still able to creep me out. But it, when you do watch a movie that this is kind of this underground, you you start to realize how much things in movies matter that you don't even notice. Like, I don't know, having extras that can act. Like, having extras <laughs> that know how to be extras. Because, yeah. like – um. There, There is a lot of moments in this that is so unfilmatic that you're used to because it feels and sometimes like a home movie that you're like – that you're just like, oh, I, I'm having trouble getting into the story because it just – it does feel like I'm just watching someone's vacation video for the first 20 minutes. All right. So you feel like it's done with a lot of love but not a lot of craft. Uh, yeah. or, comp- or competence. Like- so <laughs> I also think that there's some, there's some just um, – there's a self-consciousness to the fact that it's a student film and it's low budget and they don't have I don't think it's a student film. Spend. You know what I mean? Uh, it's it's okay. uh it feels like a student film. There's a, there's a there's a self-consciousness to it that feels like an early film. Um and I think that's best typified for me in a scene where um which is I think one of the creepiest details in the original book is that the mother of the family that lives on the farm she goes first. Uh, the kids yep. go crazy after, but the kids, the, the mom goes nuts first and she uh, starts to behave erratically. And the way Lovecraft describes it is actually kind of heartbreaking because like he watched kind of both of his parents uh, descend into a, a a mental spiral that he that they cannot be rescued from um, with therapies of the time or with medical treatments of the time and just had to kind of like live out their days um, without help. And with the prop, without proper help, I should say. And it's sort of tragic because it's so well described in, in the text. And the, the moment that I, that I think typifies this, the, the problem with the movie, the central problem with the movie is the mom is standing out in the yard acting very erratic and strange. And someone walks up to her to like say like, oh, hi, how are you? And like, you know, sort of with the expectedness of, of like, oh, I'm doing fine. The cows are great. Like what, whatever the fuck farm people talk about when they're running into each other. Ah, uh, the farm people. All farm people. Like ah, the 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 milk is sweet today, my friend. Just like ah, and and your potatoes, uh, oh, oh, quite good, starchy even. Um, and uh, the and then she's just sitting there, and she has a massive uh, bumblebee or massive horn, hornet on her head, a CGI hornet, and it's not scary. It does highlight the fa- it does highlight the fact that bugs are getting bigger, but like they have to like sh- he like shoes the bug away from her, and it's it's something where like a CGI effect is used to cover up the fact that they didn't have faith in the performances of the actors. And I'm not here to roast these actors, but like I just really wish that they had leaned into the fact that they didn't have a lot of money and just really like gotten gotten performances that could like really unnerve you and then leave a lot of the special effects stuff to uh, our, our, our imaginations. The way Lovecraft yeah, um, does sometimes. I actually kind of like the Wasp, but I agree that once it flies away, 
Like, in a vacuum, the wasp model on the mom's head is good, but then once it flies away, the CGI becomes a little incompetent and agree that, like, it's it's not a good addition to this part of the story, even if big wasps are scary. Like, too big, not scary, but, like, kind of, like, ten times as big? Scary. Yeah. Um, well, CGI is one of those things where it's, like, you know, if you're not gonna, if you're not, if it's not gonna be really, really professional, you probably just shouldn't do it because it, <laughs> yeah. it just looks, it looks draws too much, draws so much attention to it. Well, there's yeah. a scene at the beginning where clear, well, so the beginning takes place in in America, and he's getting some research at a library or a college or something where it's clearly CGI. Like <laughs> it is a blue screen with with someone standing in front of. An aisle of books that is clearly Who could find not books? there. Books don't books don't exist. Well, that on that's this the plane. problem. And and think about this. Like that's the opening scene of your movie. Like you're drawing people in, and it's not that the like with uh, the dubbing is. It's not like someone is overdubbed. It's not like a Godzilla movie or something like that. It is people speaking uh, English. The actors speaking English that must have given such bad performances that someone or in in uh, in English accents that someone dubbed over them. But they're like a second off on the words. So here you are, the opening of a movie. Everyone's dialogue is like a skipping record. And like the backgrounds are all CGI. And I, I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> it Like, I do think the last 20 minutes. And so there's a couple things I think I really like. I like the uh, the meteor falling to the ground. Mm-hmm. I think that's well done. And then I think once the movie gets eerie and stops having dialogue – it has a lot of interesting shots. I like the way they use the color. Uh, I really like the ending pan down through the earth over the credits into the well into like a uh, a more like uh, bright city light. Like there's a lot of weird, creepy, in some ways like uh, very remedial Lynchian eraser head time like stuff that they throw out at the end. But man, the journey getting there really like you have to fo- – for me, I had to really focus on not like falling asleep. And I, I I, feel bad saying that, but it is true. Like it is – it's a little bit of a, a plod to get through to get to some pretty cool stuff near the end. Right. Agreed. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good way to summarize it. Um, I, I, I have some comparisons to The Mist that I'd like to make with this movie. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like maybe I could hold it off for The Mist. But the, the point being – but my central point being that um, I think with Lovecraft adaptations, he very often has uh, many alien landscapes or multiple alien monsters. And uh, that shit is expensive. Uh, yeah. And each animation of a monster, each each specific movement of that monster, each odd texture uh, requires like hundreds of hours of work and it requires unique, thoughtful consideration. And it's e- easy to flood us with like humanoids like zombies or, you know, orcs um, in a lot of this stuff. Not, not Relatively easy. It's all hard. It, it, CGI is really hard. But uh, or something that's familiar where it, it tends to have a wireframe that we're used to or maybe like one cool, weird monster for a scene. But it's hard to have a movie just full of strange monsters and unique, unique movements like this um, and, and unique textures and all these crazy animals that are supposed to be moving in ways that rabbits don't move and bees don't move and yada, yada. Um so I get I get why why the, the CGI fails. It's an enormously hard task, and I get why uh, 
Lovecraft is often hard to adapt, uh, especially with CGI monsters, because even though it's like these these crazy monsters that like would be impossible to to put into practical effects, apart from you know great movies of the eighties, um, the the co- the sheer cost of animating all these unique things is so hard. So yeah, well, I, get, I, get, I I totally get why they couldn't make the CGI click for this. I just wish, like I had said, they focused on the performances. Yeah, this one actually didn't need that much CGI. Like, the story didn't need that much. Um, It just just didn't get a lot of stuff right. Here's what I would say. Like, so, as we go to these adaptations, one of the reasons, like, we're we're throwing in The Mist and Bloodborne is that in some ways, those are, like, the best adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's ideas as opposed to a direct movie. A lot, lot of fun movies he did. I would say one – or not he did, but people made of his work. One great one in Reanimator. But there's there's a lot of stuff that's, like, good to very good and not as much great stuff considering, like, that his, like, overall body of work and a mythos and a horror perspective is so influential – to the genre that adapting his direct work has always proven somewhat difficult from the results of the adaptations. And I think, Peter, you you hit on one that causes a lot of problems is that they are these like massive, crazy creatures and they need to be like depicted in a way that is as scary to the audience as as the, the it is to all of the protagonists of, of Lovecraft's book. Because if not, it takes away the horror because – that's like usually the final scene in half his books. Like my eyes rested upon the half pig, half bat, half octopus, half bear creature and my mind, you know, my blood fell out my ears or some shit. Like if that looks goofy, it you don't have a good reveal. So that's one problem. I'd say the other problem is that so much of his work isn't feature length. Uh, and how do you ed- – adapt that. I think the color out of space runs into that as well. Like it feels like it could make an amazing episode with a with a decent budget of a Masters of Horror or a Twilight Zone type thing. I could see why it might be difficult to take to the 90 minute mark or close to it. Um something we talked about with From Beyond last week too where where Stuart Gordon kind of solved that problem by uh, adapting the short story as the in media res 10 minute opening and then essentially making a what happens next after for the rest of the movie. Those are the two things like which and I, I hopefully this is a good segue because uh, the, the next movie we're about to talk about is the only uh, novel that he actually wrote that like is truly a couple hundred pages in theory, something that would be pared down to adapt into a feature like adaptation. And that's the, um, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, adapted into The Resurrected. Uh, did you guys want to talk about The Resurrected? Yeah, let's talk about it. I guess. Can you hit us with some alternate taglines? I got one. Hey, did you ever hope that you could find a genie someday so you can make a wish that uh, Jack's dad from Lost and Ross's first wife from Friends uh, team up to solve a Lovecraftian mystery? Well, 
save your wish is what I'm here to tell you because holy shit did they make that movie. <laughs> I was wondering where I knew her from and I was like, I remember it was one of the 90s sitcoms, but no matter what the answer is, I'm just not going to be happy with it. Yeah, she's Carol from Friends. Yeah. She's Ross's wife who uh, came out and all the characters who were cool with it and didn't make horrible jokes about it for 10 For the seasons. rest of the show, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Jack's dad, who spent most of Lost as a ghost, just roaming the island as far as I can remember. <laughs> That's a good thing for ghosts to do, frankly. That's very on brand for a ghost. Yeah. Yeah. Lost was bad, guys. I don't know how to tell you. <laughs> it sounds like the uh, ghost was well, lost. Weird. Anyway, Peter, why don't you hit us with the with the P L O T? R E C A plot. Plot. You want the plot. the plot? Oh, hit, okay. Hit, hit us with your best plot. <laughs> Can you tell me to fire away? Fire away. <laughs> uh, so the the film The Resurrected, directed by Dan O'Bannon, is based on the Lovecraft story, the case. Of Charles Dexter Ward, which is uh, one of his longest stories. It's up there with literally uh, his longest Mountains of Madness. Um, uh, and did you finish it? So I know, Peter, we both mentioned we were trying to read it before this episode. I got about halfway through and just didn't have enough time. Still planning to finish it. Um, oh, but I, I did not get all the way through it. I, I kind of I knew the outline of the story, so I kind of skipped ahead. So uh, I didn't properly read it but i can speak a little bit to the differences as a uh as a work um i forgot that it's, it was so long it's so rick, long. Did you, rick have yeah. you read this one no i actually also was like hey maybe i'll read i read the color out of space after watching the movie um better you like, oh, maybe i'll maybe i'll read this one and i was like no nah, no i won't it's much too long. <laughs> so uh essentially the plot is about a uh a man, a, a young man who's a researcher in the film. Young I man. guess he's not that young, but he's a researcher and he is sort of getting involved in uh, antiquarian pursuits. And he's particularly interested in his ancestral history. And he wants to know about how he was um, like, well, what his history is in New England and Providence, uh, Rhode Island specifically. And he discovers, this guy, Charles Dexter Ward, discovers that he has a, uh, a great ancestor named, um, Joseph Kerwin. Uh, and Joseph Kerwin was a, he ran away from Salem and he was a, a, a witcher. Uh, he was a witch, witchy guy. Uh, he, he got deviled in uh, necromancy and the occult arts and conjuring demons and spirits and uh, performing, um, yeah, sort of witch activities like Lovecraftian things, the, the, the deep dark stuff. And uh, particularly he was interested in resurrection and raising uh, people from the dead from their essential salts, uh, which is this concept that essentially was believed that sort of a pre-DNA idea that your body, it could be reconstituted from its parts back together again in some manner. Um, and uh, Charles Dexter Ward gets really involved with this. He gets connected with uh, his ancestor, uh, Joseph Kerwin. And uh, what do you know it? He resurrects his ancestor, Joseph Kerwin. And uh, as we are 
uh, sort of exploring this story. This whole thing is framed out as a double indemnity style. Uh, wounded guy is speaking into his tape recorder to tell us the story framing device. Very noir, very classic sort of story structure. And he's investigating Charles Dexter Ward's oddity. He's investigating this Joseph Kerwin connection it, on the uh, part of jo- uh, Charles Dexter Ward's wife. Um, in the story, in the original story, it's kind of like for his wife and also his parents. And it's a doctor investigating him, not a, a PI. Um is it Jack's dad from Lost, though, still? <laughs> he's actually he's actually a Dr. Willett, I believe. He's, like, supposed to be a much older gentleman, and it's, like, it's a little bit less um, fun and cool than, like, a noir detective. Um, One so- thing I'll say, too, about the book that I got to is that uh, I like that. So, the, the, the way that he's investigating the dad in the movie is just he's just investigating it, essentially. Like, the book has a lot more connections to a lot of other Lovecraftian work because of the Necronomicon that he finds. Yeah, he it's got it's got a connection to Yogg-Sothoth and other sort of um, Lovecraftian deities and there's a whole thing about about um, Joseph Kerwin raising the dead but being careful who he raises because he doesn't want to raise actually uh, the wrong old one because he couldn't control yeah. it. Uh, he wants this – this is a great Lovecraftian villain in both the film and the, the the work because he's this guy that took – he was raised from the dead by an ancestor. He killed the ancestor, took over his life and pretended to be him to mixed <laughs> – mixed success people are like that's definitely him but he's acting weird so he gets himself locked in an asylum um and his whole goal is this sort of control he wants to raise the right people from the dead to sort of conjure an army and uh and he wants to basically just use this life as a jumping off point for his previous research his previous sort of uh, dark dealings and uh yeah, so the the PI, the wife, and the PI's assistant discover Joseph, the whole Joseph Kerwin connection by invading his lab. They find these monstrosities. the The PI's assistant gets murdered. The wife and the uh, and the PI get out, and they uh, they get out of the house. They blow up. So the yeah, house. so they but they find the catacombs with all these like attempts to raise the dead that are like. Yes. intestinal body parts that have fused together. They look a lot like Resident Evil monsters. <laughs> they, do. Yeah, they do. And I, I like that. Le- yeah, we'll, we'll definitely spend a, a decent chunk of time on those guys because they're, uh, they're, they're good boys. And they get out of the house. They blow up the house to destroy all of his research. Charles Dexter Ward is locked up in an insane asylum. And uh, they all kind of realize uh, during this catacomb invasion during this this lab invasion dash uh the discovery after that this isn't charles dexter ward it's actually joseph Kerwin. found this bones you keep yeah your briefcase <laughs> and then um the wife has a um i know these bones anywhere <laughs> I, I know these bones <laughs> these are new bones you got yeah. new bones here. These Look are new bones. These are, these are dried blood. These are new blood. Yeah. Well, who else bones could they be? It's like a newspaper of today, like a <laughs> reading glasses. But the bones. The bones. They're, they're, they're money. These are dead bones. <laughs> so the Joseph, uh, Joseph Curley. Are these your husband's bones? <laughs> are these your husband's bones? 
These are husband's phones. Oh, they are. They are my husband's phones. <laughs> oh, oh, he always had that little shin part that did the, that little bump thing. <laughs> I can tell. Uh, the PI confronts Joseph Kerwin in his cell at the asylum. Joseph Kerwin is uh, secretly swole. And the moment that he's confronted, he tears out of his, his uh, straight jacket, starts attacking uh, a security guard or an orderly, I should say, at the, the I don't asylum. know if that's so much of an attack as just rips his head off and throws yeah. it on the floor. I would constitute that as an attack. Classic. I would yeah, say, okay, but, but it, you're right. It's an attack, but start attacking implies that there's a there's an end that doesn't happen immediately after. <laughs> he, throws, he throws him through the lights for dramatic He effect. starts and finishes attacking this guard. Yeah, it's kind of a disassembly. A very quick disassembly. <laughs> Don't need this. Woo! Uh, it's like saying I was attacking the cherry on top of a cupcake. His um, body, though, I'll tell you what, if you rip, according to this movie, if you rip the head off, uh, a neck hole is like one of those poppers you have at the, like a New Year's party that just sprays <laughs> out the <laughs> the strings with a mm-hmm. quick pop because that room is covered in blood pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a straight up arterial spray everywhere. And uh, Joseph Kerwin attacks uh, our PI, our friendly PI. And uh, the PI manages to raise Charles Dexter Award to the to uh, to life from his bones that he brought with. He brought the bones with. About the potion, the bone potion. No, brought the bone potion. In the original story, it's incantations, and in the this, it's a it's a bone potion, potion, bone potion, <laughs> and. Uh, the, the Charles Dexter Ward raises uh, just enough energy, rouses just enough energy to defeat, uh, Joseph Kerwin. Then the last moments of the movie, uh, the PI decides, like, the story is not only not believable, like, no one's gonna let me off the hook for this, this weirdness, but, um, it, 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 like, doesn't make... No one will be able to suss out what this is for the sake of the family, for the sake of the wife, for the sake of the parents, for for everyone's sake. Basically, I'm going to perform an act of of trickery and breaks the window to make it look like Charles Dexter Ward escaped from the asylum. Joseph Kerwin was never raised from the dead and the P.I. walks off into the moonset and uh, he uh yeah, he, uh, he starts recording a story. So that's the let's, resurrected. Let's, so that the the ending is actually the funniest part. I I like this movie a lot, but the ending is kind of like mean, and that like, well, I wanted to spare her the truth of what happened to her husband, so I told her he was loose out there. Her psycho cannibal husband with a taste of human flesh is just out there <laughs> somewhere. I'm and, oh, and P.S. You're pregnant with this child. Sure, he's not gonna want to come back. Anyways, it's fine. Uh, you can pay me in check or money order. Um, <laughs> like it, it doesn't seem like a kindness on that level so yeah. much. I don't know. Here's um, looking at you, kid. Yeah, uh, lock your doors. Uh, I did that for her. I told that to her. Yeah, in the original story, he makes it very clear to, I believe, the father that um, that that the son is dead. Don't wait up for him. But he spares him the fact that his uh, great ancestor rose from the dead and slaughtered him. Uh, yeah, so I watched this for the first time a couple years ago um, at uh, one of our Spooktobers. And I remember uh, actually like thinking it was like, uh, okay. Uh, and I liked it uh, even more this time. Um, I, I really did enjoy it. And I think we've talked about this before because we do Spooktober coverage. 
uh, during during uh, the month of Halloween, where we try to watch a bunch of horror movies in a short period of time. And this is not the first time that I've come on this show and said, "Yeah, I appreciate it." Once it was removed from watching ten other horror movies that week, and I'm starting, I'm starting <laughs> to think, think that maybe October is a bad idea. Is not good. Yeah, do you think that actually uh, minimizes the movies that we would like more if they g- we gave them a little breathing room? It reminds me a little bit of like what Roger Ebert has said about like. Uh, like some some movie that he called like flat out hilarious that has like a giggle. He's like, look, I watched that at Sundance after like sixty hours of suicide mo- dramas. Like, yeah. um, a movie that had a funny part seemed hilarious to me at that point. And I feel like sometimes these kind of like not great but pretty good horror movies get lost in like the sea of Spooktober. So, uh, yeah, like I I uh, I enjoyed this even more, just kind of removed from all of that. Even if it, you know, because it's 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 directed and by Dan O'Bannon and not written by him. Although he was like he was writing com- a story uh, with the person uh, he was writing a competing story for this, and then the studio found out that this other guy was writing it. So they kind of were like, well, why don't we just team up and get the budget for it? So he had a lot of story ideas that were in this, and it it feels like. Um, a Dan O'Bannon movie, a mixture of kind of like goofiness and corniness and like purposefully in a lot of cases uh, and great special effects and a few like truly scary moments. Like mm-hmm. it feels like for a guy that only directed two movies, like his his my idea of who Dan Bannon is, is very strong as like a, a from aesthetic standpoint, just because his stamp is so indelible for a lot of movies that he made. So uh, this is the last movie he directed. Um, out of two, but it it, it really it, I I really appreciated all the little moments uh, removed from the context of watching it with a ton of other horror movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was a, this is my first time watching it, and I was pretty fond of it. I really love the framing device <clears throat> that it's a yeah. double indemnity style noir story. I think that's a really great way to approach Lovecraft because because I love the idea of a cynic coming in someone that, like has no interest in any of this shit and just coming yeah. in is like i'm just here to find your your fucking husband i'm gonna yeah. get him i'm gonna get him you know into treatment if we need to do that but like that's when the check the check gets cashed right and uh it, it's it's a great it's just a great traditional horror thing is to have a cynic get turned around um and i think the central performances in this movie are all pretty solid even though like i don't know this actor from anything else and like i don't know if i i like need to chase him down in other things this john terry guy but Ooh, jack he, from lost jack yeah, from oh, lost. uh yeah the ghost from lost um, you don't know him from uh playing jack's dad on lost Oh yeah, yeah, on ABC that aired from 2004 to I don't know, we'll say 2009. Um, so he was the father of Jack Shepard and Claire Littleton on ABC's Lost. I forgot that Claire was Jack's sister, Peter. I gotta go to some websites and read some lore. <laughs> uh, I'm on a website, Wikipedia. I've never seen an episode of Lost. Um, oh, so. But yeah, I, I think I think that the central performances of that little crew make this movie sing for me, and it has yeah. a very it has a very wonderful sense of atmosphere and shadow. And there's a lot of really great handheld camera work that I was particularly particularly a fan of. I haven't even touched on the special effects, but we'll, we will get there. They're really cool. Um, they're not the thing level, but they're really cool. There's a lot of it feels like rotating steady cam shots. <sighs> 
yeah. uh, when when they're kind of like coming to a real realization or walking into a forbidden place that uh, it's not a ton, but each time you like it, it feels really good from a just like, ooh, I like what the camera's doing right now, which is a, you know, a fun thing that happens sometimes when you watch movies. So, Rick, did you get anything out of this? What, what did you think of The Resurrected? Yeah, I actually liked it a lot. The um, the noir aspect is probably my favorite part. Um, but, it, I mean, it plays really well as a horror movie, too. But there's actually the, uh, you're talking about the framing device being the noir aspect, but there's so many, like, wheels within wheels that they do that it gets, I, I think it's self-consciously a little bit hilarious. Like, there's a part... So if the whole movie is kind of being narrated to the tape recorder, right? Mm-hmm. Then we have within that, there's a part where they find Kerwin's diary. And then we go into his diary. And then within the diary, uh, I guess, I can't remember who the woman was, but she talks about Joseph's wounding. And then it flashes back to her memory. So you're like four deep in this, like, <laughs> this... You're 100 uh, percent right. I had a note because they do that in the company of uh, in the company of wolves too. Um, yeah, yeah. Where there's a part Very where funny. like it's a, the whole thing is a framing device, and then at some point there's like eight flashbacks deep. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I got a kick out of that, but uh, yeah, I liked it a lot. It was um, I thought uh, just the notion of taking the Lovecraft themes and pairing it with this like semi-hard-boiled noir was just really entertaining to me. I enjoyed that. Yeah, I think that's, I think that whole straining device is actually pretty, pretty, um, faithful to Lovecraft, who very much liked to approach these stories from a researcher and outsider's perspective, looking in. Uh, he liked to approach these stories as, I heard this strange tale, or, uh, my buddy sent me these files, and he, usually the protagonist is not a man of action, which I think can turn people off about Lovecraft. Um, it's not true in this story, but usually the protagonist is this like weirdo outsider, just like, like, wait, why are you taking notes on this? If it's making you insane, uh, uh, like a lot of stories are like, I am literally just holding out my suicide until I can finish the story. That's, that's Dagon. Spoilers for Dagon. Um, There's a lot of stories like this is going to be the last thing I write before I die. (laughs) Yeah. Shadow over Innsmouth has a very fun flip on what you expect to happen in that Shadow over Innsmouth, which we'll get to that when we talk about Dagon. uh, But Shadow over Innsmouth, um, the film Dagon, um, has an ending where in the, the, the book where he's like, uh, yeah, so I uh, found out uh, I have an ancestor of fish people, and uh, you know what? Actually, I'm just going to become a fish person. I'm out of here. And he like, <laughs> breaks out of the asylum. Whereas like, yeah. usually the stories end with him being like, oh, my great-grandfather had sex with a porpoise, and then he kills himself. <laughs> Is that a gill? <laughs> what's, that, what's that one fucking story where like the whole story is him finding out that like his ancestors have sex with monkeys, and he's Arthur German. Monkey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's... That's exactly that is a fun twist in Shadows because yeah. it is like most of these stories are like oh no someone yeah. fucked a monkey I think I think Arthur German ends with somebody self immolating because they find out they have um, it is yeah some sort of beast uh, in their in their ancestral blood I was like you made it this far buddy just chill let's yeah. see where this goes so, sounds a little racist uh, yeah that, that Lovecraft story sounds a little racist <laughs> hmm. Lovecraft story racist <laughs> check my notes um. <laughs> but, but yeah Rick I think you're on I think you're on to something that like the, the framing device being a little convoluted uh, it, it, intentionally unintentionally funny not funny I think it's funny um, yeah, is is, is true to Lovecraft 
I also think it speaks to, again, the contrast of the color out of space, because that adds a framing device that we just talked about didn't work. And this one does. And I think part of it is just having more, you know, more material to work with. Like, this is a, if you were to read every word, and I know because I have the audiobook version, this is seven hours, this story is seven hours long. Movie's an hour and 45 minutes. So you have a lot of stuff to move around and work and pull from as opposed to trying to add to fill time. And like the the book itself, the first third of it is just telling essentially the story of his ancestor. Um, and I like the way they kind of, instead of like, well, here's all the stuff we learned about the ancestor and here's like, that would be like a first act of this movie. They were able to kind of move that to like a five minute recap in the middle and then set up like, hey, my husband's been acting weird and you get to go along like a noir, like a mystery and yeah, kind of discover yeah. what's going on. And that fits well right. with with the story as a whole. And like Peter said, with just even though uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward doesn't really set up too much as a mystery, except like, well, how does all this stuff come back into play? Because you're finding out that like his ancestor, Kearns or whatever, used to, you know, eat flesh and like. All, no one liked him in his shipping company because he kept importing slaves and none of them, like, when they went to his house to count his slaves, he didn't have as many as he's been importing and other terrible things. Um, but, like, it just kind of walks through his entire life story over, like, 70 pages um, and being able to cut all that stuff out uh, while still keeping the spirit of there's a mystery to be solved, I think is a really good choice. And you're right, Peter, like, the it makes the protagonist accessible. Uh, in a way that, like, definitely the guy, the Liam Gallagher dude from Color Out of Space, it's not. Yeah, well, I think they found they found an entry point into the story that makes a lot more sense. And there's more incident, like you're saying. It's a yeah. there's more things that happen. But uh, they found. I feel like it's it's a decision, a set of decisions about how to approach the material that just works a lot better. Like that, uh, there was an experimental version of uh, Color Out of Space that originally I thought we were talking about. I was like, oh. really? We love to watch is going to cover a four minute experimental movie? That seems out of character. But uh, <laughs> so I was wrong. But I watched it anyways, and I think it was it was actually the right approach because it was like wordless. It wasn't really about what happens in that story, but it was trying to evoke the mood. And that was it. And it's three minutes long, which seemed appropriate, as opposed to the one that we watched, which is like, you know, significantly too long for what they have to to work with, you know? Yes, exactly. I do feel like it's a lot of, I'm glad you watched it and liked it. I'm definitely going to check it out because I wasn't aware of it. I also feel like you could have said all that without a bunch of condescension to what you love to watch. (laughs) I could have. <laughs> what I could have should have. Yeah, um, I make I make choices. <coughs> no, it's not even what I could have should have. It's just what I could have. Could have. Oh, I love you guys. I'm just playing. <laughs> we love you, Rick. Um, so Rick, uh, yes. the fact that we brought you on for this this noir and the fact that you enjoyed this horror noir, uh, were you? Were you at all confused why this movie was just buried? Like, it's only available on a specific Blu-ray. Uh, it's it's it seems like it'd be a really easy movie to like repackage and sell to people. I don't I don't know why this movie disappeared. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it well, is. That kind Blu-ray of... just came out two years ago. Like, it was impossible to watch until. Right, right, and it's also you know it's only one of his two movies. You would think that 
people would have clamored for it long ago. But I don't know. And, and like, let's talk about like Dan o- what Dan O'Bannon's been involved in. He's involved in Dark Star, which was John uh, Carpenter's first real feature. Um, he was involved in Star Wars to do the computer effects. He was the writer on Alien, which we talked about. He's a co-writer on Dead and Buried, which is also like a cult movie, probably on the yeah. scale, if not bigger. Yeah, um, Dead he- and Buried's good. He wrote Life Force, which is a pretty big cult movie, but not as big of a cult movie as Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, best movie mm-hmm. of all time, Life Force. Wrote it. <laughs> Can we redo <laughs> Life Force on the show? Um, I think we should, just because I want to watch it again anyway. Yeah. And it really is uh, before we learned how to record and edit. So I, I watched that movie earlier this year again. It's Love so it. good. Lucky you. Love like, it. Yeah, it's so good. Just a, it's just a blessing to be alive in a world where life force exists. Yeah, and Steve Railsback. <laughs> Steve well Railsback. What about? <laughs> I I think that the film is actually really well produced. Um, yeah, there's there's a a uh, a lot of really uh, solid camera work that comes from Dan O'Bannon being like a. Uh, someone who appreciates classic filmmaking, but also someone who, like, knows when to just fucking pick up the camera and do some handheld shots in this era where that those kind of shots are kind of rare. Um, It makes the raid on the house and the raid on the crypts both so scary. Like, it's just flashlight. It's really well lit, too. We should. I got to note that. It's so well lit, like, the flashlights uh, swishing around and, like... Just the catacombs, you the catacombs scene in particular. Oh, really yeah. yeah. Where, where all you can see is matches and gunshots. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And, and so so we, should we talk about the special effects here? I, but they, yeah. This movie sort of um, smash cuts to a monstrosity when in, in, in a, one of the flashbacks um, where there's this – it's sort of a half-formed skeletal bestial thing that just is floating along the water – and it's one of the things that Joseph Kerwin, the original Joseph Kerwin, has resurrected and sort of discarded. And the story has a lot of similarities to Reanimator. Joseph Kerwin is kind of um, similar to Herbert West in that he's uh, he's kind of shitty at, at doing cleanup. Like, he likes to play with his <laughs> toys, but he doesn't like to put them away. Um, so he, like, he like doesn't know – he doesn't necessarily kill his creatures. He'll sometimes just, like, they'll, they'll get out of the lab or he'll lock them up in a, in a crypt to just rot forever. And one of them ends up in the river and floats upstream and then just some fucking randos find it and burn it and it is such an awesome introduction to the body horror that will come mm-hmm. it's re- it's really creepy and it's um has the perfect amount of like handmade special effects and then it this movie has a lot of like stage two return of the living dead energy but like everything is based on the oil slick monster at the end i forget i feel like he has a name that i'm forgetting yeah oily rick um Oily Rick. <laughs> um, but, uh, but like, it, it is that kind of, like, uh, like a skeleton with a lot of, like, facial features and stuff like that that's, like, moving in a weird, inhuman, human way. And, and it's, like, like, kind of a half-skeleton. half Yeah, exactly. With, half with flesh still on there. Yeah. Yeah. Drippy. Um, and it's... It's really like when when it shows up and then like reacts to being burned and is partially alive, like much like the 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 zombie at the end of Return of the Living Dead, it's your first instinct is to think it's goofy and then like you you start looking closely and recognize how detailed it is and like I feel like it becomes more unnerving and scary the more you kind of like realize everything that you're seeing. I think that's yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, that's it's totally true because there's at first it, you get smashed with this sort of pinky gooey thing that vaguely looks like a Halloween decoration, and then the more the more it animates and the more you get to spend time with the the sound effects, the sound design of the thing, um, and and you have to contend with the fact that this thing is alive. Uh, yeah, it makes it scarier, which usually uh, in horror movies, especially movies about zombies and reanimated things. The first time you see them is the scariest, and then the longer you stare at them, the more it's like, yeah, oh, it's a zombie. Okay, yeah, I'm used to it. Uh, I get it. That's ketchup. There's an entire there's an entire plot in Day of the Dead about people getting bored of dealing with zombies. Like they're just like catching them like they're dog catchers. Uh, so so um, yeah, I, I I think that's a really great way of, of putting it. And then there's a lot of stop motion animation in the catacombs with the way that that particular monstrosity animates um and it it has a sort of blurred effect which at first i was like oh it just looks cheap but as it went on i was like wait i don't know how a half formed monstrosity that was resurrected from dust magic (laughs) would move like would it move all herky-jerky would it move smoothly would it move like almost like a, a a um you know when you see something weird moving in your peripheral vision and then you look and there's nothing there? It's just mm-hmm. sort of like a strange blur. Uh, would it move like that? And I think that's sort of the effect it gave me when I was looking at it. Like it wouldn't quite give you enough time with it, but the more time you did sort of uh, accumulate with it, the creepier the effect got. Yeah, and that's um, – I think that's why the the monster at the end of Return of Living Dead is so creepy too. Like at first it's this kind of goofy face with big eyeballs that makes – like almost Muppet type motions, but then you start seeing it walk and it moves in this kind of inhuman way that adapts to the fact that its joints and its bones are falling apart, but it's still trying to move in a quick way. And like, that's really what takes it from kind of a little goofy to creepy. Like Dan O'Bannon as a director clearly understands like the movement of inhuman monsters that gets under your skin. Right. Yeah, I feel like there's a, I mean, Cronenbergian is like a really, um, you know, sloppy shorthand, but like in The Fly, for instance, there's that, there's a sense of like that slimy hybrid thing uh, that all these, these monsters have in common. That's just, there's an uncanniness about it. It's not just like scary or gross. It's just unfamiliar. It's weird. Something's off. Yeah, it's it's not quite human but not quite not human, right? You can't yeah. just you can't just cast it off into the side box of freak or monster. Like there's there's something alive in this thing, and something you're you're gonna have to wrangle with, uh, both literally and sort of philosophically. Um, yeah, and that even I mean that gets even more pronounced later on when they're in the 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 catacomb. So there's essentially like two wonderful creatures. There's first they they look down into one of the the pits, and they see like. I don't even know what you describe it like if you took all someone's innards, like circulatory system, intestines, stomach, and like like tried to graft what a human looks like from memory, but you've only seen it like twice before and it was a year ago. <laughs> like like it's kind of a body shape, but also it has random things that like stop that don't go anywhere, and it's like a like a weird like uh inner workings of that. And then uh, that's great. And then after they run away from that, there is this like even more crazily put together that this is the one that really reminds me of a Resident Evil monster just because it's like, God, like I, I want to just look at it on Google image search and like 
look at all the different things they put because again it's in the dark you're seeing the flash of the light it appears out of nowhere suddenly with the flashlight but it is i don't even know how you describe it it's so well designed though it's indescribable like everything lovecraftian so that's appropriate yeah and i i love that they sort of similar to reanimator i love that they hint at what the magic is what the science is and there's clearly a logic to it um but they don't try and offer some sort of pat pseudoscience to explain it like clearly they are tapping into some sort of of universal mystery can't really be fully understood and it feels like uh i i always thought about this way especially after reading the story originally was that joseph Kerwin isn't tapping the ceiling of the universe and saying i'm gonna break through this joseph Kerwin is like sort of just teasing the truths of the universe. He He's doing something very petty and small to me, which is raising humans from the dead. This is the sort of power that he's sort of, you know, he, he's using, um, he's using electricity to power like a hand fan. <laughs> like when, when the, 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 the limits of what the relative limits of what this power can actually do when, when fully harnessed is, is truly like unthinkable. Yeah, well, the the notion of like um, the acquisition of knowledge and uh, you know the explanation is it's interesting given the noir structure because it is like the guy he's coming at it from trying to to crack the code. He's trying to solve a mystery, and uh, but then at the you know the conclusion is like no, we're just going to let this mystery be. Like people aren't going to buy this anyways, and then he walks off like you said into the night. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe it is it does come to the same inexplicable conclusion just within that different framework. Yeah, I think I think it does fit fit within that. It, it was a really smart idea to take it away from just being like a family doctor investigating the family and make it someone who's just like looking trying to solve a nuts and bolts mystery. Uh, so we should talk about a little bit more about the themes. Um, people talk about Lovecraft as an inspirer. Um, but they don't talk about Lovecraft as inspired very often. And one of Lovecraft's biggest inspirations was Edgar Allan Poe and other sort of gothic literature of the era. And uh, Yeah, that and uh, the aforementioned issue with his parents. Yeah, exactly. Big inspirations. He's inspired by family trauma and good <laughs> literature. Yeah. Um, which is probably a uh, pretty common theme within gothic literature as well. I feel like that's sort of a turtles all the way down kind of thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, the the gothic storytelling here is is a big thing that Lovecraft got into. People like to talk about the tentacle monsters and the, the monstrosities and the beasts and those are awesome. People love it. And the cosmic horror, those are awesome. But he was also very much obsessed with gothic horror and he loved the idea of these like these long family lineages hiding secrets and this creaky old house in, in ill repute that like is 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 uh the, the the tenants of it are half dead and half alive and the the only reason they're living together is because death has not been kind enough to just you know sweep them down with its scythe like that's sort of like big dramatic gothic storytelling and particularly sins of the father which we talked about a moment ago um and uh how joseph Kerwin fits into that uh but yeah you like to just write stories about how 
your ancestors could fuck you over. And, uh, yeah. you know, in, in Shadow over Innsmouth, it was uh, treated as a uh, vile racist thing because you know, he was concerned with miscegenation of the races and mixing blood. But um, in uh, and it also with Arthur German. But in this, it's literally talking about how like it's it's more it's far more interesting here because it's it's not just a shitty understanding of what where genetics would take us. Um, it's a uh, it's an under it's an understanding that like. Your who you are as a person is actually very much related to your family background, what you've been told about your family background, and then there's probably a lot of nature in 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 involved there too. A curious yeah. mind invites curious minds, so to speak. Yeah, I think it sort of gets lost in the discussion when we we just talk about him yeah. as as a as a, an inspirer to good and bad uh, fiction, uh, let alone. Um, somebody who existed in a context and like he was he had an extensive horror library like he was a horror nerd who just like wanted to combine his love of science and his love of God, the gothic literature and he had to work his way there and his like, love of not going outside and his love work. <laughs> his love, <laughs> his love of creepily peering out from windows <laughs> yeah whoa that was spooky I'm hiding again not coming out for a year <laughs> um, can we talk about how he he names a character Dr. Ash and it's, it's, a, it's just Joseph Kerwin who was raised from the ash. And it's just Joseph Kerwin. It's basically Chris Sarandon wearing a mustache. It's wearing a shitty beard. He was like, yes, that was our most ingenious creation. We're <laughs> noting I put on that not only does he think it's ingenious, he does a beard reveal. Where yeah. he's like, this was Remember. the beard I used. Uh, or the movie does, where it flashes back to him pulling out the beard. Like, hey, Chris Sarandon's looking so sly. He's like, oh, the beard trick. Love. And it's not like Chris, <laughs> it's not like Chris Sarandon has, I don't know, unique facial features that, uh, <laughs> like, he's, he's one of those people that just, when I think of Chris Sarandon, I think of every man gets lost in a crowd. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, he's really good though. I uh, one of there, there's a couple great moments. Uh, Chris Sarandon is really good in this. Uh, I love the part where he's in the where he gets taken to the hospital uh, when he gets arrested or whatever, and him like whining about like really pathetically pleading for uh, food that's uncooked meat. Um, yeah, like, like uh, and and the, like in a in a hyper like manic state where he's like half awake in consciousness like just kind of mumbling about um yeah that they're like you have there's this is all cooked i need fresh i need fresh like it's really uh, do, they, do they does the story go the um lovecraft story go into that more like his need for flesh a little bit um so it's not even a need uh it's a hunger it, they, these creatures feel a need for hunger, but they don't actually have to eat. And uh, so these monstrosities, did you assume that they were made by new new Kerwin? The um, I don't know. No, I don't think I did. I thought they were they were old. Yeah, because the the in the original story, they make it clear that I mean, in the movie, it could go either way. Um, yeah. But in, it, but in the, the uh, original story, they make it clear that these fucking things have been sitting under there for like 150 years, which I mean transplanting this to the 1980s uh makes it that these are like 200 year old beasts that have just been sit, like sitting in their hole waiting for something to happen and that they don't die if they don't eat uh they just like to eat and they crave it and they cry out for meat but they don't actually need it 
That's fascinating. That's yeah. great. I really like uh, the other Chris Sarandon moment I like is uh, when he's still kind of pretending to be pathetic Ward when uh, Jack's dad from Lost comes in and uh, and then he's like, hey, you know, I found the bones. I know. I know that you are. You're Kerwin. And then like, I know your bones. Yeah, I know. I know these bones that he immediately kind of changes his vocal inflection and personality and even his posture. I do think his Kerwin voice is a little goofy, but it still kind of works with the general theatrics of everything. But it's a, it's a really like Chris Sarandon hasn't really been in a, like a ton of stuff. That, like everyone knows him from The Princess Bride, but like it was it was fun to see him in this. And I, he does a really good job. And he his facial features, I think, adapt really well to uh, to horror type makeups that give you the look of someone kind of going um, going insane and and kind of like not getting enough sleep because like he's handsome but like it's easy enough to to take those kind of like those big eyes and the cheekbones and make him look like he is like truly a man like on the cornerstone of death if he doesn't go to sleep pretty quick. No, when he's all ashen and uh, you know looks like yeah corpse like that that's a good makeup job right there. He looks he does look like he just crawled out of a two hundred year old catacomb. Yeah, because he can speak. Uh, he can sort of speak with his mouth mostly closed, and it and it nails the effect. But also, he when he does finally decide to like go out for a bite or start yelling, um, and you know really reveal who he actually is, uh, he has a very theatrical big face, like yeah, a, a deceptively one. And he's kind of a he's kind of a, a cult horror king between like this and the Sentinel and Fright Night. Like he's he's been in a lot of solid. Oh, that's right. I always forget he's in Fright Night. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that it's twists on twists because I think the actual main twist is easy to guess. But the um, but the, the fact that it's it's it ends up being a fight inside the asylum cell. And then at the end, uh, it's not that Charles Dexter Ward jumped out the window and escaped. It's that he faked uh, the P.I. faked the uh, the escape to add a layer to the story. And I think that's really it's a really neat way to subvert this framing device. Um, I, you know, I will say I didn't even get the, twi- like, obviously I knew that there was like a raising of the dead, but like, I didn't get that, like the real Charles Dexter Ward was dead and then he was the replacement. I figured it was like, he was going crazy because like the first time I saw this, I figured he was going, starting to go crazy because he had kind of uh, touched this dark magic and that like the finale would be like. Now the now he's back and he's pissed and he wants his teeth fixed or something like that. As opposed to like the twist that the character we've been seeing for a good portion of the movie has always been Kerwin. So I, I think that the, even that twist works really well and agreed. Like I was expecting the whole movie of like how how are they going to chase this superhuman demon monster uh, as opposed to like just a just a cover up. And I also say speaking of special effects, one thing we didn't mention, I really like the ripping of the flesh that occurs between Kerwin and Ward at the end. Like some of the light effects are a little, you know, early nineties cheesy, but like literally like tearing out like ligaments and tendons and strings with like uh, his bare hands is so fucking good. Yeah. The skeleton, the magic dust man fight is way cooler than it sounds. Um, It's, it's uh, when it first starts, you're like, 
He's going to fight with just like a skeleton. And then as pieces of his flesh start getting torn apart, and you see where the poster art for uh, for the DVD comes from. Um, yeah. You're like, oh, uh, this is another special effects piece that that is different than the shit we've already seen. We've already seen these monstrosities with fingers in the wrong places and and that, an odd odd eye eye uh, mouth combos. Um, but now we're seeing this sort of like magic fight in a sort of um, dark uh, Clive Barkery fashion, and I really like that. But yeah, I I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of that uh, gross fight at the end, especially because yeah, our main too. character just kind of sits it, it, it sits and watches it happen uh, because it's so out of his depth. Like he understands just enough to like call up his own Pokemon for the fight, but nothing yeah. more. Um, yeah, so I think we can probably move on to final thoughts. I mean, yeah. one of the reasons we wanted to double up on these movies is that, like, you know, I really like this one. I I feel like I feel like we hit all the points I wanted to talk about in a relatively short time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we. Can yeah, I agree. Peter, do you want to go first? Sure. So I talked a lot about the fact that the film is a is a piece of of um lovecraft's inspiration that it calls from lovecraft's past um and that's because this movie and the story that's that uh inspired it the case of charles dexter ward feels very uh autobiographical to me lovecraft actually didn't set all that many stories like in providence proper or in rhode island proper it was often in like a sort of fictional part of new england he loved new england but he had a particular love for for rhode island and particularly providence uh where he he kept returning to in his life and in this story in the original story there's like a long i don't know how many pages uh diatribe that he has about how beautiful providence is and how this main character fell in love with the antiquity of the past and how he sort of got involved with joseph Kerwin's memory and then soon actual joseph Kerwin. and uh he talks lovingly of the architecture of the city and and the and and uh one of the fascinating things about the movie is that it does touch on a lot of these things. Like there's a skyline shot of Providence that, and uh, a lot of close shots of some Providence architecture. That's like, yeah, like people, people love this town, but also uh, there's a river. It smells like shit a lot of times. (laughs) Um, And, and it's sort of, balancing out of Lovecraft is something that the source material, sorry, the balancing out of Lovecraft's um, uh, sort of, worst and best impulses sort of it makes this a far more interesting film, a far more interesting work than it would be just straight up adapting Lovecraft as is uh, gross foibles and all and gross sins and all. And uh, it was very similar to Lovecraft because I think Lovecraft was someone who got lost in the past. He got, he got caught in the past, an old way of thinking. He was someone who came from an aristocratic background, but it was very much faded by the time that he received it. And he, he uh, saw himself as above a lot of types of, of work. Um, and he saw himself as someone who, who uh, you know, if he couldn't feed himself with writing, like what else could he do? Like I, he couldn't work like a stable job or, a, uh, you know, working class sweat on your brow kind of job. Like stable no. jobs are outside. Yeah. The shit that like all of us do <laughs> like he, all of that would be below him. Um, unless like, I don't know, you like curate an art exhibit. Um, 
Working at a software company would be below him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he'd think that's pretty cool, to be honest. Um, no, he'd be terrified Science. of computers. Um, but he had an antiquated way of viewing the world. And uh, and I think that this story was also sort of his way of, of slapping himself on the wrist for his, his love of the antiquarian past. And uh, that's what makes it so interesting to me. And then the adaptation takes a lot of um, those sort of source material drives and modernizes them, yes, but also reacts to them. So it's not that um, Joseph Kerwin was – it's not that Joseph Kerwin was just a bastard for all this like necromancy. Joseph Kerwin was also a monster because he was – he exploited people and he treated people like garbage. And the old times were in some ways just as evil and ignorant as, as the new times. And uh, – and, and that goes the other way around. The new times are just as ignorant as the old times. And um, that 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 is what makes this adaptation so interesting to me because it doesn't just take Lovecraft's work and say, all right, here it is. There's a moving pictures now. It says, here's the work filtered through me as an artist, as a writer. And I'm going to take what I find interesting about the work and present it to you, which is like the true artist's way of adapting Lovecraft. It's not just fucking passing off what he did. It's just just unfiltered. Yeah. uh, And, you know, we we our first adaptation with Stuart Gordon. It's not going to be our last this month. Stuart Gordon kind of feels like he's the person who has, you know, done it consistently and done it well every time. Um, So it's fun to kind of get into this. a few other adaptations, one made by people that truly love uh, love the work. And, and if you're going to make a movie out of a Lovecraft story, like it doesn't get much better than Color Out of Space. And, uh, you know, but but at the end of the day, I, I think uh, they they offer a good contrast in adapting the material where where one uh, tries to adapt too close within a limitations of. Uh, of the story and the fact that it's almost like there's no dialogue like Lovecraft stories are so often like just just a pay of solid page of description and and you know I think the makers of the color out of space didn't really know how to deal with that so as we mentioned they started putting just descriptive uh, sentences into people's mouth as like straight dialogue to keep the the text intact while while figuring out a way to make it work uh, filmatically and I think all, and then trying to, you know, create a cohesive narrative by throwing in these other things. And I think, I think at the end of the day, it kind of shows why, you know, you, you do have to figure out how to grow and adapt it, uh, a way taking, taking the horrors and the theming and figuring out a way to kind of maybe modernize it or also in some cases just, just lengthen it. And I think it serves as a good contrast with The Resurrected, which takes a lot of liberties with the source material from a framing perspective, from how long they spend on certain parts of it, adding, you know, kind of essentially new characters into the novel, but still keeping the underlying horror intact, but still remembering that, like, adapting, uh, especially someone as like Lovecraft and Poe has this problem sometimes too. Like it takes a lot of, you, you have to add a lot to it and you have to pull out the right parts of it. And, uh, I don't think the resurrected is a great movie, but I think it's a very good horror movie. It's a very fun Dan O'Bannon movie. And it, it, it pulls out the right parts of Lovecraft to make it still feel Lovecraftian, um, without, uh, without it kind of, 
while still serving as just a good cinematic experience to anyone who likes horror films. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's those are all really good points. I think the uh, the notion of um, how central the the past is and this like the, the haunting of the present, either in in terms of like you know the corruption of the land in the case of color out of space or um just general sort of corruption and degradation and you know this vast conspiracy of ancestry um that comes through it has a lot to do with the the stories within stories because these are also about the haunting being haunted by stories and being haunted by storytelling in these various ways which is handled much much better in uh the resurrected because it I think has a freedom to play with the story itself instead of being so bound to it, um, to the original text, which is kind of contrary to, it's kind of, um, a paradox in some ways, but, uh, yeah, I think those, those are all the things I was thinking as well. I just think that the framing and the cent- centralness of, uh, s- stories is related to all of that. Yeah, no, that's uh it's a great way to wrap up. And as always, uh, Rick, it's so much fun having you on. We uh, hopefully, you know, we'll. I'll tell you what, we'll let you ping us and let us know when you're ready to come back <laughs> on the show. Yeah, but no, but know that once you send us that note, we'll find something for you very quickly because uh, we're really excited for you and uh, your partner. We also respect that. Hey, this you know this 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 is sometimes a time consuming process, both in watching the movies and. And every and then coming and sitting down and record with us two boneheads. So um, again, we're glad we were able to schedule it right before and talk about something that uh, you know we doing a double movie in a in a month that uh, I think is really interesting to to all of us. And you is a big horror fan as well. So thank you again so much for joining us. Um, no, thanks for having me. And, Alternately, Aaron, we could yeah. uh, start a podcast a little bit later just about poop. Yeah, poop. The poop cast about the poop cast. How much poop? Uh, is involved and i think the different stages of poop i think uh you know it's it's there's there's essentially uh different different uh, st- uh different themes that you go through <laughs> yeah. um sometimes you know we talked about first it's just the poop that's going to happen as part of childbirth that's a was a poop and then there's like new baby poop and you gotta deal with that it's gonna be you're gonna see some poop you haven't seen before that first week you know, there's a lot of stuff that they ingest inside the womb and it's going to be – you're going to be like, that's the poop and the doctors are going to say not the poop. It's going to be different soon and then you got to watch you, that to make sure the poop's okay. That's you enjoying this? You're enjoying this? You on your log cast, I will not be joining. <laughs> you enjoying this, Peter? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Peter, it's going to be good for you because someday down the road if, if you and Molly decide to have kids, you know, listen back to the poop cast. So I can um, break some ground. Uh, yeah, so you could, you know, we, we do it for, Rick and I do it for educational purposes. And yeah, just trying just to be, help. Just because some people want to stay ignorant and in the dark about how much poop and babies go hand in hand. Uh, everyone has a preconception that it's, that it's a lot, but what they don't know is it's different each time. Uh, so anyways, <laughs> yeah, I agree, Rick, when you have some time to, and, and you know what, again. We'll talk. Yeah, we'll don't, talk. don't take... Don't take time out of your meeting the new life you brought into this world to do the poop cast. Just write down notes and it can be, you know, my, my kids are getting older. It can be a retrospective poop cast. Yeah, totally. Uh, do you have anything to promote besides the fact that, yes, you're going to have a person that's a little Rick? Pretty yeah, cool. yeah. going to have a little person walking around. Um, I actually do have um, around Halloween, I should have uh, a paper coming out in a journal 
called um, the Journal of Curriculum Theorizing, and it's about my uh, vegan horror stuff. So it'll be about awesome. veganism and uh, horror, animal rights and horror movies, and it's very long by the standards of the stuff that's been on Luddite Robot, and uh, if you enjoyed any of that stuff, you'll probably enjoy that. So. One of my favorite things you ever worked on. It's just so it's yeah. so good. Well, I got I got twenty some pages coming your way, buddy. <laughs> I think I've been I think I've been since the beginning. Be like, do more of this. I, I've also been listen say is we've joked <laughs> well, we've joked in the past about uh, doing like a whole series on how these these topics intersect, um, like the human body and and uh, animal rights and veganism and all this all this stuff. Like I. We've talked about doing a series on this, and I still want to do it, but we'll, we'll have your baby. We'll figure it out later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. and also, also when you get when the paper gets published and you hold it up in a picture, if you could please wear a monocle and one of those jackets with the corduroy patches, I think that would be amazing. I would, yeah, absolutely. I have you're, it you're ready a, to go. You're an officially a learned man now, Rick. Yeah, it's a journal. It says journal, journal on it. Yeah. You know, I've, there's other journals I've heard of. Medicine. Uh, the journal of probably there's probably one called science journal yeah. of other things the journal of that i kept when i was a kid for like two days sure. uh, a lot of learned people do stuff in journals and rick i can't think of anyone more appropriate to add to that i am honored to be honored in this way <laughs> great I feel, I feel like we're not actually doing the honoring i feel like the journal is, <laughs> but but i see how you pivoted to the end uh, yeah. yeah, and of course, check out LudditeRobot.com. A, a ton of great writing. Uh, I think we've talked a lot of sugar every time you've come on about some specific moments. But I but I still think back to, like, specific articles I've read as I'm thinking – just thinking or rewatching a movie. Uh, really, really great writing, even if most of it wasn't journal-worthy. Uh, <laughs> That's a fact. <laughs> um, uh, Peter, what are we doing next week? Next week, we are taking on – Frank Darabont's adaptation of Stephen King's The Mist. And we're going to be talking about the black and white director's cut. Uh, if you want to sort of play the same the same uh, film that we're playing, uh, which we both think greatly improves the film, particularly the black and white uh, greatly improves the special effects. And the yeah. uh, director's cut aspect, I think, makes it a stronger horror film. Yeah, it literally the director's cut actually changes nothing besides the black and white. Yeah, yes, highly recommended to check that version out. And uh, Peter and I also read the book, the no novella. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to talk about that. That uh, it's kind of a little we, we've been trying to like plot in these detours because, as we've said, like we want to talk about Lovecraft adaptations, but we also think there's some even more successful versions of Lovecraft story that are uh, influenced heavily by Lovecraft without being a direct adaptation of one of his stories. So uh, The Mist is one of those, and we're going to have another pit stop in that area with a video game called Bloodborne, which is an episode we already recorded, and uh, very excited for that one to come out later uh, in August as well. So, without further, I don't know, ado? It's kind of sure. back to the poop theme. <laughs> um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll bid you, I don't know, sweet nightmare realm for now, and uh, we'll talk to you next week as uh, Project Arrowhead fucking blows up some shit. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night. The kiss that called her Holly And if she's scared you then she's sorry She's been stranded at these parties And these parties they start lovely 
But they get druggy and they get ugly and they get bloody The priest just kind of laughed The deacon caught a draft She crashed into the Easter Mass With her hair done up in broken glass She was limping left on broken heels And she said, Father, can I tell your congregation How a resurrection really feels? folks thanks for listening to we love to watch thank you so much for listening to our show and we've got just a few quick announcements for you there ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs baby if you'd like to talk to us uh tell us we're stupid tell us we're beautiful the quickest way to get to us is our facebook group facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.